the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on TheAnswerTampa.com. This is Radio AM 860, The Answer, and we are a local station with national power. Don't you agree, Bill? Absolutely. (laughs) Sure. And... uh, I am your radio doctor, Dr. Bill. We are at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. We're an iHeart station, and you can also reach me live anywhere on Earth, 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at drbillradiomd.com. That's drbillradiomd.com. Click Listen Live, and you got me. But, of course, you have to have a a headset or speakers on your computer to hear me. So that's a good thing, and you can do that. And we also have our toenail, antifungal toenail gel, which you can get by ordering at my office at 727-384-6411, By the way, this stuff really works. I've been using it for five months, and I had toenails that were completely engulfed in fungus and now they're almost clear. It's unbelievable. I can't believe that I actually made something that works this well. It's my invention. So if you need that toenail gel to kill the fungus in your nails, give us a call. 727-384-6411. Well, today is... Well, it's the end of the July 4th weekend, and what a great weekend it was. I hope everybody enjoyed it. I had a good time. I thought it was a a wonderful holiday, and I've always enjoyed the 4th. We sat out on the front porch and watched the uh, fireworks in Gulfport, Florida, which we can see it's about a half a mile away from the house by the the crow flight, and uh, we had a great view. And we were sitting up on the balcony in the front of the house with a little wine and beer and enjoying the show. And then we had uh, some leftover fireworks that we had bought when Zeke, our son, was a little boy. And they're little baby fireworks. You know, they're only about six, eight inches tall and spew out some flames and all that. And 
but the wife really enjoyed it. So we put it out in the middle of the street and all the neighbors were looking out their windows at us like, uh, wow, that's interesting. The Handelmans are crazy. Oh my God. But we had fun. It was good. So the whole thing here is what is the meaning of the July 4th? Now the founding fathers, when they signed the declaration of independence, they all had different ideas about how the day would be celebrated. Some thought it would be celebrated with uh, parades and fireworks and displays of military ability. Others thought it would be a day of prayer and reflection. It's probably a little bit of everything, a great mix. And the whole idea is to reflect on our founding, which, of course, is something that, in my opinion, is sacred. Sacred not in the sense that it's metaphysical, but sacred in the, that, in the sense that it holds for humanity uh, a promise of freedom and of self-determination and of a better life, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And I don't think that means anarchy, as many of the left-wingers would like to attribute to it. I don't think that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness mean you can do anything you want. But I do think that it means you can do anything that you want that's productive and healthy and helpful. Of course, you can do anything you want. You know, there's consequences to everything. And say, well, where did these concepts come from? Well, we talk about Locke and Montesquieu, the great philosophers of the uh, 17th and 18th century who added so much to the founding fathers' knowledge base and gave to them uh, the concept of a social contract uh, of the people, the individuals with the society and the government that they lived in and under and with. And Montesquieu famously gave us the idea that there should be checks and balances in government. And that's why we have three separate branches of government, which most countries don't have, that check and balance each other. And we've talked about that before. Now, John Locke's concept of a social contract believed or placed in it uh, that we would naturally form a state and that individuals in a state would be bound morally by the laws of nature. So the laws of nature would say, basically, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And that is, don't harm each other. Don't take each other's lives or possessions. And I think that there's a lot of confusion uh, on the left as to what that means. So what do you take? Well, I don't think that it's the right of one person in society to take from another person in society, whether it's done through uh, uh, law or uh, theft. I think that we all have to agree that we will have a system of taxation and what will, what will be fair in that taxation system. What will be fair for me to give up so that you may have a better opportunity and that you may have health care or you may have other things that you feel are necessary to your, uh, your subsistence and your existence and your uh, life and your liberty and your pursuit of happiness. So we have to be able to work that out because without that, there's no security in these rights and we'd all live in fear. 
And I think that's exactly what we're seeing being stirred up by the left when they say that those of you who make a lot of money, even those of you who don't make a lot of money, as Bernie Sanders says, uh, you need to pay more in order for us, we, the government, to administer to you what we think you need. So we have to have a debate on this as to what it is that we really need. And what is government? Is this a state that would provide a, a neutral judge that would help to determine what is necessary and how we get to that point and that would act to protect our lives and our liberty and our property and, and our individual health and welfare? And I think that without the idea of freedom and free intercourse and the right to self-determination, at least to some degree, that we're going to end up in conflict because if one side says, well, we think that you have too much and we're going to redistribute it, but they don't have a good solid reason to do that. They say, well, there are poor people and you're rich people. Are these poor people starving? Do they not have a roof over their head? Do they not have electricity, heat, running water, uh, access to health care? I mean, there are some basics that we can think about and say, yes, we feel that it is a moral obligation to provide and to ensure that everybody has some basics that allow them to participate fully in society and to get ahead if they apply themselves. You know, Locke, the great philosopher of the Enlightenment who gave so much to the Founding Fathers in terms of their ideals of government, argued that government's legitimacy comes from the citizens' delegation of power to the government and that the government has the right to become violent in order to enforce laws, but only laws that we, the citizens, agree need to be enforced. So I think we universally agree that murder, rape, uh, muggings, these are all crimes of violence and that we want the government to counteract that by, if necessarily, if necessary, uh, arresting people who perform these acts by using violence. Police have guns, they have billy clubs, they have mace, they have all these things that are violent. And that's part of our first law, and I've said this over and over again, the first law is uh, self-preservation, and if you don't get that one right, well, the rest of the day is pretty well shot. But along with personal rights comes property rights. Because without property, we can't survive. We have to have somewhere to grow food. We have to have somewhere to put a house. We have to have somewhere to park a car, uh, to establish a workplace, to have a factory, to have an office building, a medical clinic, whatever it is. You got to have property. And if there's no property rights and anybody can come in and do whatever they want in your property, and we see this with the bums on the street and the bums not only on the street, but they come into my, in, onto my property of my building and uh, on the lawn and do all kinds of crazy things. And, 
you know, without the right to protection of our property as well as our person, we really don't have any freedom. And, you know, people say, well, we should have a popular democracy. The president should be elected by the popular vote of the people. We represent more than just the, the populace of the United States. We also represent individually and collectively the property of the United States and of our states and of our counties and cities and municipalities. And that's an extremely important concept that escapes uh, many on the left. And it's not, it's, 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 it's not unexpected that the young people would gravitate to that because they haven't had the opportunity yet to work in a mass property the way those of us who have been in the, in the workforce for a number of years have. And, of course, a lot of those youngsters will change as they get older, and they'll see that, you know what? I work for this, and now that I have this, this should be a, a basic right of mine, that, that if I've earned this, that I get to keep this. This is part of freedom. And not only is it part of freedom because I earned it, but also because it's a necessity. So we represent, or we have a representative government that elects the president on a state-by-state -state basis and not on a popular vote. And so we empower the government to do certain things, and we have to keep our expectations realistic. Otherwise, we're going to lose those basic freedoms that we have fought so hard for over the uh, past two and a half centuries. You look at what the founding fathers saw and thought and felt. And by the way, you know, the tax that they revolted over was 1%. 1% they revolted over a 1% tax. And we tolerate, we abide 35, 40, 50% tax, 60% tax in some states after you pay federal, state, local uh, sales tax, gasoline tax, and everything else. Can you believe that? That the founding fathers revolted over a 1% tax, and we're paying 50 times that in many parts of the United States. Unbelievable, isn't it? It kind of makes you chuckle, but uh, I understand that we have a much more complex country now and a much more complex physical uh, layout, demand, uh, infrastructure. Uh, in a lot of parts of the United States when it was initially uh, founded, but... Uh, now we have running water and electricity and gas and all these things. And speaking of which, I need a little bit more hot water in my coffee, so I'm going to take a 30-second break, and I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, Radio MD. Yes, sir.
With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. The United Nations nuclear watchdog is aware that Iran is planning to break the 2015 nuclear deal's limit on uranium enrichment. That's what the U.N. says today. The International Atomic Energy Agency says its agents in Iran will report to Vienna headquarters when they know more. Financier Jeffrey Epstein arrested in New York yesterday on sex trafficking charges. Law enforcement officials say the 66-year-old, who's already a registered sex offender, uh, is involved in trouble relating to allegations going back to the early 2000s. He's being held at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan and is expected to make an appearance in federal court tomorrow. He once counted presidents and princes as friends. And California Governor Gavin Newsom says the two major earthquakes that hit the southern part of his state in the past week should show governments across the country they should be prepared. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Once upon a time, many years ago, customers would find your business with this big, thick book full of phone numbers and competitors' phone numbers. It was a heavy, cumbersome, yellowish-looking thing. I believe they called it a phone book. You'd place your ad in the book and hope customers would call. Hello? We've come a long I don't know way. That would be now, there's Salem Surround. We help deliver I'll customers right to your front door with targeted digital marketing. These are the tools of the 21st century smart businesses use to succeed. And our team at Salem Surround can guide you through all the available options mm-hmm. with the expertise to manage all your digital marketing under one roof so you can spend time taking care of your customers. Get started with a free evaluation of your digital presence and some yeah. great ideas to increase know. your online visibility and we'll revenue. With Salem Surround, there are no limitations right, well, on how and where you can reach customers. Hand. Total market penetration for increased ROI. Learn more at surroundtampa.com. Surroundtampa.com. Works Connecting you with new customers. Do you like winning prizes? How about getting sneak peek opportunities and offers before anyone else? Join the Answer VIP Club today at TheAnswerTampa.com and gain access to incredible contest opportunities, discounts from your favorite businesses, and more. If you're a passionate conservative and want to be rewarded for being a part of the Answer community, (coughs) sign up for the Answer VIP Club today. Join the Answer VIP Club by clicking the Fan Club tab at TheAnswerTampa.com. Dr. Bill here, tired of toenail fungus? Me too. That's why I formulated Dr. Bill's antifungal toenail gel. Safe, non-absorbable, conveniently packaged in gel tubes, reasonably priced, six-month money-back guarantee. No herbs, no spices, no tree bark. Real medicine for real people, only $29.95, online at drbillradiomd.com, eBay, and Amazon. 
Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Sunshine this afternoon, followed by clouds, a thunderstorm around high 89. Tonight, partly to mostly cloudy with a couple of showers late, low 76. Widely separated thunderstorms in the morning tomorrow, then humid with times of clouds and sun, high 87. Monday, cloudy with a shower or thunderstorm, high 89. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Brian May for AM860, The Answer. Hey, that's why you can't hold me down. I don't want to be down. I got to move on. Oh, Stone Green, you do what I bring. Stone Green, right on the bridge. Stone Green, I can't stay up. Dr. Bill, a little bit of Jimi Hendrix and Stone Free on this holiday weekend. He was complaining about uh, his years in Seattle, Washington, when people would make fun of him for his outfits and his lifestyle and his uh, being black and so on and so forth. Uh, and he says, I want to be free to do what he wants. Uh, and, and I agree with that to a certain extent. I think that the freedom to pursue what we are good at and what we are capable of uh, accomplishing and and uh, becoming is important. I, I think it's an essential part of any free society that the individual have the ability to advance oneself in a manner that's productive and to choose and to uh, study and to apply themselves with some degree of autonomy, but at the same time being able to fit into society and being part of it as well. And uh, you know, I think Jimi Hendrix was probably the extreme of that. And of course, his his uh, self determination and his demand for personal freedom took him to a drug overdose and an early death. On the opposite side of the scale. Uh, are the socialist, the socialist party, the progressives, and the progressive tax reforms, and uh, the idea, the ideals that they put forward, or that investments that are made through their idea of the economy will grow the economy and set America on a path for long-term deficit reduction. And I've talked about the deficit and about how it's a little bit of a phony, baloney argument. And since I've talked about that on the radio over the past decade, uh, you've heard a lot of the of the claptrap about the burgeoning deficit go away. Why? Because it's it's not really a matter of deficit or excess. It's a matter of balancing the books. And if you don't balance your books at the end of the year, if your company is not not showing both red and black to equal out to either a loss or zero or a positive. In some way or another, you have to balance those books or nobody's going to do business with you. That's just simple accounting and bookkeeping. So we do that every year in the United States. You say, well, what is all this budget deficit they're talking about? We sell our money. Our money is our most valuable product because it is so stable it is backed by the strongest uh, economy on the planet, maybe not the biggest now. China may have a bigger economy, but the strength of that and the longevity of that, of course, is in question. So the deficit 
is a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Money is a commodity, just like oil, just like wheat, like anything else, and we sell it. So we have, over the past several decades, accrued more and more deficit, but relative to the growth of the economy, it's really not that big of a deal, and, and it's something that we sell, and we need the cash here at home uh, to purchase goods from outside of the country, so it, it's a big it's a big circle, you know, I pay you and you pay him and he pays them so they can pay me. And that's what my plumber put on the bill years ago. And I got it. And the socialists say, well, look, during the years that the Democrats were in and with their policies, the federal revenue averaged 19 and a half percent of the gross domestic product, whereas the years before that, it was 18 percent. I'm not quite sure what that means. It sounds good. They say the writing's on the wall. A revenue-neutral approach to tax reform on either the corporate or individual side of the tax code is not an option. So their idea is the, the taxation should be increased both on individuals as well as on corporations. And, of course, the president said and has proven that that doesn't uh, grow the the economy in the country, that that actually uh, slows down growth, and his principles and his policies seem to be growing the economy, seem to be growing the wealth of the country, both great and small. Everybody's uh, benefiting from this. But the, the socialists say, let's close tax shelters for the wealthy. Well, there's not that. In, I mean, I don't know of any tax shelters other than your your home mortgage, and, and that's for everybody. And they say that'll bring as much as $167 billion a year. I don't know where they get these figures. Ending the ability of U.S. corporations to delay paying taxes on foreign profits, which would save $61 billion a year. Terminating destructive corporate breaks, $16 billion a year taxing Wall Street trading to discourage reckless speculation. How are you going to do that? They say that'll produce $35 billion a year, and they want to place a surtax on income above a million, which would collect $45 billion a year. So if you add all this up, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be maybe 2 or 3% of the, of the federal budget right now of the income that we bring in. And I don't know how much business it's going to interfere with and slow down. So their message is that taxation is good, increase taxation, and uh, redistribute the wealth, and give something from the rich to the poor, and this will grow the economy. Now, we've tried this. And the, the problem is, is that when you start taking from people their property that they've earned and you redistribute it to those who have not earned it, at least not yet, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help those who are less fortunate because we know that by extending a hand of assistance that we can pull a lot of people up, but by forcing us to do that, uh, I think that we're only interfering with the 
natural course of events, which is that we all have the right to self-determination as both our person and our property. And then if we lose that, then we are not going to do well. And we've seen that. We've seen that happen over, over the past uh, many decades, starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s. We've seen what happens when we have these strong socialistic programs that they don't work and they actually drive up the cost of, of goods. Like in healthcare, the real inflationary spiral started with the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s because the government had money and threw it around uh, willy-nilly and that inflated the cost of, of health care. And now they're supposedly stepping on that and uh, controlling the cost more. Yahoo! And uh, so now we have HMOs and so the money's or at least until now, I don't know how it's doing overall now, but, you know, I have people in my neighborhood that made hundreds of millions of dollars off of running HMOs. Well, where'd the money come from? It came from you and me. So we have the government stepping in and the socialists want the government to step in even more. And it doesn't work. And I think that uh, the integral principles of the socialist party are that our personal property and our, and our personage are not our own. And that if we are not willing to negotiate in some way sharing that with the rest of society, then society will take it from us. And that's, in my opinion, <laughs> that's a totalitarian government. I mean, that's exactly what we have been fighting against. That's why we fought against Great Britain in the 17th, uh, 70s and 80s and won our independence and that's where we are today we're still fighting that fight we're fighting against people who think that we have a responsibility to give up to society whatever society demands of us no no we don't we do not and that will destroy our society that will destroy it it'll take away one of the most valuable assets that we have, and that's the right to self-determination, not only in our person, but in our property. And the Founding Fathers made this perfectly clear over and over and over again. And that's, that's something that we should not take lightly. And we should not give that up without a fight. And we have to remember, too, that self-determination goes along with our personal and our property rights. And the self-determination theory is one of motivation and personality that addresses some universal uh, aspects of our existence. existence. There are some innate psychological needs that we all have. We need to feel competent in what we do, whether it's digging a ditch or doing brain surgery. We need to have some autonomy. We can't be micromanaged or we're not going to do well. And we need to feel like we're interrelated with the people we're working with and with our community and our family and our friends. And we know that if we don't have these things, that we don't do well, that we're uh, uh, abused, that we're neglected, that we're robbed in some way of our, of our ability for self-determination. And so what is competence? Well, competence is 
is learning how to do the things that we're capable of doing and that we want to do in a way that is of value not only to ourselves but to society and to um, our our friends and family and our coworkers, and that's important. And you hear this all the time that uh, soldiers in the field, ultimately, they don't feel like they're fighting for their country. They're fighting for each other when they're in the heat of the battle because this is who they've trained with. This is who they have uh, become competent with. This is who they have a psychological relatedness with. And I think that that's true in the workplace as well. I see my employees and those who are not team players, those who do not uh, fit in or who are obstructionistic or who are lazy, that the other workers don't like that. And it's not that they are concerned as much about the business doing well, although they are because they got to get a paycheck, but they're concerned about their interactions and their interdependence and what burdens are being placed on them personally and how that's taking away from their individual uh, freedoms and their individual property rights. And you can see that. I mean, you can see how someone would look at that and say, well, you know what? If she doesn't pull her weight, then I got to do more work and I'm only getting paid so much for what I do. And so all of a sudden I'm devalued because of his or her unwillingness to participate fully and to do their share and their job. And then my job is not as rewarding. I don't feel fulfilled and my competence is challenged because I'm overworked and I can't keep up. And my autonomy is challenged because I'm now expected to pick up somebody else's job description, somebody else's responsibilities. And therefore I'm no longer autonomously working uh, as in a willful situation as a member of a team, I'm working more as a slave. And so it's important that everybody is competent and part of competency means that they pitch in and do their share, that there's autonomy. That is that if I tell you, I need you to draw blood and you've been trained to draw blood that I don't stand over you and micromanage you. Now, if you're having trouble struggling to draw blood on a patient, and you need my help, then I'm in the wings. And if you call for me, I'll come and help you out. And we need to be psychologically interrelated, not only at an equal level, but also the boss has to be interrelated psychologically with the people he is supervising or she is supervising. That's extremely important. You know, that gives all of us the motivation we need to participate fully, to feel interrelated, and at the same time, and to be competent, and at the same time to have some autonomy in the job that we do. And this is just part of what we are and part of our sense of of freedom and self-determination. And without these these, uh, aspects of psychological self-determination theory, we don't have anything. And, and I, th- I think that the founding fathers before the science of psychology had taken f- full root realized at, at a macro level as well as at a personal level that these were necessary and vital aspects of human behavior. And they tried to incorporate this and did a pretty good job of incorporating it into our constitution and our way of life. 
So we're going to have to fight to hang on to this. And that's part of what the 4th of July is about. It's there to remind us to hang on to these very uh, vital aspects of our existence as a country and as a people. And if you think that we are no different than the rest of the world, you ain't gotten out much lately. You have not gotten out much lately. We are very different. And uh, I listen to people in China complaining about how their freedom is restricted, how their job choices are restricted, how their ability to speak openly is restricted. Now, that's changing, and we've talked about that. And it's changing not only because they have opened up free enterprise uh, to a large extent, but also because they have access to information from the outside world. And so now they see and hear and talk with and interact with people from all over the world. And I know because I talk to Chinese people on the Internet when I'm ordering goods for the pharmaceuticals and doing all the things that I do. And it's a fascinating world. It's a fascinating world. And it's interesting to see how they're evolving, but it's also uh, a great contrast. You know, my sisters will say, we're all the same. <laughs> no, we're not. We are not all the same. You know, the Declaration of Independence, which was uh, the great work of the wordsmith Thomas Jefferson, our second, I'm sorry, our third president, was a rehash of things that had been said for 150 years prior to Jefferson writing that treatise. Uh, a lot of this came out of the Age of Enlightenment, which started around the uh, 1650 era. Uh, the English Civil War was in the 1640s, and out of that war came uh, a better understanding of self-government and uh, the balance between a strong executive and a strong legislative body and the demand by the people in England that they have more input and more direct uh, uh, say into what the government does and to give the government power. The English people, the British people, said that the power comes from the people and that without that, we don't have anything. And of course, we took that a step further, saying that uh, not only does it come from from the people, but it comes de novo from those who seek to ensure more strongly the rights of self-determination, self-preservation, and uh, property rights. And I throw that in there because you can't have uh, uh, you can't have freedom individual personal freedom without property rights. It just doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. And that's probably the strongest uh, argument that we can make against a socialist state is that when the rights of the individual are trampled upon, whether they're rights of personal freedom and self-determination or rights of property and of ownership that you're going to destroy some of the basic psychological aspects of human existence, and that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, you know, I was talking with my neighbors, and they're all upset, even though they're very conservative. They're upset, and they think that 
Facebook and Twitter should all be regulated, that these are, in essence, public utilities. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about this and I said, wait a minute, a public utility has no inherent bias. A public utility is uh, electricity. Electricity has no bias. They're conduits for pumping their, their wires that you pump electricity through, electrons, and we can buy as little or as much as we want within certain parameters. We pump gas, we pump water, and these are all uh, unbiased, no message attached, basic necessities of life in the 21st century in our society. On the other hand, services like Twitter and Facebook are services that are provided that are optional. You know, if you don't like the way Facebook is run, you can go start your own. You can't go out and start a public utility. It's not not something that you, you can do without governmental approval, but you can go start a Facebook or a Twitter or a mail service. And you say, well, the U.S. mail is, it's, it's the same thing, isn't it? It has no bias. They don't read what we put in our mail. It's not out there for the public. You know, you, you send a letter to me or a, a letter to 100 people, and that's all that's going to get it is 100 people. Now, you can do that on Facebook, but you have to uh, certainly go in and, and, and use the appropriate uh, security applications. And so there are choices that exist on, on what you can and cannot do on Facebook or Twitter. You don't have to put your information out there. And a lot of this is just more p pleasurable than it is a necessity. It's something that makes us feel good because we feel like we're interconnected with family and friends. We can share pictures and we can blog and we can give our opinion and we can uh, uh, act silly or act serious, whatever we want. And, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is leisure. This is not necessity. You don't have to have Facebook to eat, to heat your house to go shopping. I mean, you don't need it for these things. And certainly these avenues of uh, interacting, social interaction, social media, uh, they're more intellectually and emotionally engaging than electricity or water or gas or other basic services, cable. Cable is inherently non-bias, unbiased. Now, when you get companies buying cable uh, access, then they can put their bias into it. And we know that CNN and Fox and all these other news agencies that are pumping out over the cable networks, that they put in their own bias. But we don't have to watch them. There's no necessity to that. It's not like they're announcing earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes 24 hours, uh, seven days a week. Come on, give me a break. And, you know, the quality of, of living, the quantity, the quality of living, it's not, it's not really relevant in the social media. I mean, you know, it's like going out and buying a Twinkie. Do you need a Twinkie? I mean, if you need a Twinkie to live, then... Go get yourself a Twinkie, but I guarantee you, 
I guarantee you that you will survive without a Twinkie and you will survive without Facebook. You'll survive without Twitter, but you're going to have a harder time surviving without the basic uh, utilities, public utilities that are supplied at our behest as a necessity of life in the 21st century. And so the safety of the social network depends more on our self-discipline than it does on some governmental agency stepping in. And I certainly don't want to see more governmental intervention. You know, I've argued this for the past 15 years that we, we need to make sure that the federal government doesn't get too much power. We need to make sure that the federal government has enough power to act in an emergency, in a crisis, if we're attacked, to defend us, uh, to ensure that there are certain regulations in the banking industry and the stocks and bonds and so on and so forth. But we don't want them to step into our social life. I mean, that's the whole idea of, of, of our independence, our life, our liberty, our pursuit of happiness. And that means our individuality and our property rights. So the safety in the social media, which, by the way, absolutely unequivocally is not a public utility and should not be regulated in the same way, depends on our self-discipline. Now, you may say, well, it's not fair that social media will allow liberal thoughts but not conservative thoughts. That's a little bit different than complete uh, domination of it. I mean, with the public utility, you have to go to the, uh, the public utility uh, board or council or committee or whatever it is in your state or your jurisdiction and apply for uh, a rate increase. And you have to justify it to show that it's necessary. And you can buy public utility bonds. Uh, some companies sell stock, so they're publicly held, and they have a board that governs them, <clears throat> and they have to abide by certain state and federal laws. And uh, you say, well, shouldn't Facebook and Twitter and all these other social media outlets have to do the same thing? Do you really want a, a telephone call to be regulated? I mean, micromanaged by your federal government? This is what I'm talking about. When you take away that autonomy and you try to micromanage everything and everyone, uh, you destroy individuality. You destroy our sense of self. It doesn't work. And, you know, social media doesn't enhance the quality of our lives necessarily. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are people that really find it to be fulfilling, that they can send pictures of family and friends back and forth, that they can uh, voice their opinion uh, into a mass media, a mass audience, and bully for them. But will they survive without it? Yeah, I think so. Public utilities? Uh, in the winter, if you don't have gas or electric to heat your house, you might have a hard winter. You might not make it. And I, I, I don't know how to frame it any more succinctly than to say that uh, 
if you want freedom, then you have to tolerate a certain amount of uh, bias and things that are not necessary for our, our existence. And we also have to tolerate a certain amount of free speech that uh, we may find uh, obnoxious and um, disconcerting and challenging and unpleasant. But if we don't tolerate that, then we're not going to have the individual freedom and autonomy that we so seek. So even though we don't like what we hear on the left, we certainly have to afford them the uh, opportunity and the right to say what they want to say. Of course, not on my time. You know, if you come into my conference or my lecture or my uh, meeting, which has been scheduled and you disrupt it because you disagree with me and you stop me from having equal interaction and equal communication and equal intercourse with, with my fellow human beings because you disagree with me, well, then that's not acceptable. And I think that that's where government has to step in. And that's partly why we have government is to enforce all of our rights to meet peacefully and to assemble. That's, that's the first amendment. You know, we have the right to assembly. And if a, another part of society interferes with that, then they're interfering with our first right amendments. And that has to be enforced. We have to uphold the first amendment. That's more importante, as we say. Now, along with all of this, I think is a, is another factor and that's called self-reliance. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, our, our great <clears throat> essayist and uh, American thinker of the 19th century, the first half of the 19th century, he believed in a philosophy of self-reliance. He was what was called a transcendentalist. And, you know, he, he thought that we should get back to nature, which was a big deal back then uh, because of the Industrial Revolution. As much as we see today, uh, the the there were many people of the population that felt that the industrial revolution was ruining society, that it was taking away jobs, that it was polluting and it was making us weak and uh, that it was making us dependent upon technology and that we were losing the ability to take care of ourselves. So he was one of these back to nature guys. And I think he had some good ideas. I think the idea of self-reliance is important. Of course it's, been reshaped in, in, in our times because it's difficult for you and me to go into the backyard and put in a truck garden as well as go to work. So there has to be some interdependence and some uh, um, <clears throat> specialization so that we can work more efficiently. If we try to do everything ourselves, then it's not going to work. If, if I try to be a doctor, a lawyer, a chemist, uh, a pharmacist, uh, an engineer, all these things all at once, I'm not going to do anyone well because there's just so much knowledge and so much technology involved in each individual uh, profession that I have to specialize in order to be effective and to add to society. All of what is needed from what I've been given and taught and the brain that my parents gave me uh, to 
help people and make the society a better place and work. And it is a better place, and it is working better than it ever has. But the idea of self-reliance, I think, is important when we talk about autonomy and we talk about <clears throat> interdependence. Can I rely upon myself with internal discipline to do the best job that I can do? Do I need you to tell me how to do that job? Well, look, if I'm not sure what I'm doing <clears throat> and I ask you for help, that's one thing. But if you come and intervene when I'm not doing anything wrong, but I'm in the process of, of figuring it out or learning it, and nothing and no one, no one person is in jeopardy because of that, then leave me be. Let me be self-reliant, and I'll let you be self-reliant. Don't step on me when I'm trying to learn and grow, and I will afford you the same courtesy because without that ability, part of the autonomy, and, and I, I feel that this is so inherent in what the Founding Fathers were trying to convey to us is that you need to be self-reliant at the same time you need to be interconnected and interdependent, but it has to be at a voluntary level. And that if you come and step on me, whether I'm trying to work or study or uh, mature or retire or whatever it is and interfere and micromanage me, it ain't going to work. And so I think Emerson had a, a good idea in that he said that without self-reliance, we're not going to find fulfillment and we're not going to find happiness, that we have to be able to do some things on our own. And you see this with little kids. They want to make their own toast. Given the opportunity, most of the little kids will. They want to carry their own bag when they go to the airport. They want to do things for themselves. They want to get dressed. I can remember when my daughter, Grace, turned a year. She refused. I mean, she just flat refused to let me feed her. She fed herself. She decided at one year of age that she was independent of me when it came to feeding herself, and she fed herself. And this is so uh, integral to the healthy growth and the healthy survival of human beings and of a free society. And there's a certain amount of nonconformity that has to go along with, with this uh, idea of autonomy and self-reliance because people need to try on a little bit different things as they're growing and see what works and what doesn't. And that's part of what brings innovation to the equation. And without that innovation, we wouldn't be where we are today. And you know what? It all goes back to the founding fathers, to the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, which afforded us autonomy, freedom, uh, the ability within certain boundaries to be nonconformist, uh, to be self-reliant, and at the same time to be interdependent and to encourage us to understand that we have a responsibility to each other but that responsibility has to be given and not taken. That if you are forced to give up part of you to society, 
that that's going to work very well. That's not going to work. So with that, I'm going to step out, and I wish you all the happiest of Fourth of July weekends. And I will see you guys next week. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio FD. Thanks for being with me. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.